Proverbs 14, and we're going to take 21 through 30 tonight. Proverbs 14, 21 through 30. The Bible says, He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not err that devise evil? But mercy and truth shall be to them that devise good. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishest of fools is folly. A true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. In the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time together again, for these songs, for this time of fellowship. Pray now that you bless the word as we look into it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're moving on to Proverbs 14, wisdom and foolishness. Verse 21, we'll start there. He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Last week we ended on verse 20, but since these two verses go together, let's go back and read them together. Verse 20, the poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. He that despiseth his neighbor, that's the poor, sinneth. But he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Uh, the poor are hated, generally, and the rich are welcomed. We live in an unjust society, don't we? Where the rich are honored and the poor are despised. Um, some people abuse that for political purposes and... You have social justice movements and stuff that claim to care for the poor, but they typically don't. They lie. When Cuba, when uh, Castro rose to power in Cuba, it was always for the people. And then he enslaved the people. So you have to be careful about that. This, don't trust secular politics to care for the poor. Uh, they care very little about the poor. But as biblical Christians, we ought to care about the poor. and We ought not favor the rich over the poor. We were uh, watching the news two weeks ago, I guess, and uh, if you heard about a couple of years ago now, that uh, football player for the Raiders that hit that girl and killed her, drunk driving, 120 miles an hour, car caught on fire, she burned alive in the car. He could have faced 40 years in prison. He got three to 10 years. He could be out in three years. Actually less, because time spent in county jail counts towards your prison sentence. He could be out in less than murdered somebody. Murdered somebody. I told my wife, if he wasn't a famous football player with a lot of money, do you think he'd be facing three to ten years? No. I knew a guy at a prison down by Bakersfield who was got for, gotten for DUI, didn't get in an accident, just pulled over DUI, had his child in the car, you got child endangerment. You got seven years in prison. He will likely spend more time in prison than this football star will. You know why? We favor the rich. 
and we oppress the poor. That is unjust. We are respecter of persons. That is unjust. Listen, Christian, we are not to be respecter of persons. We are to judge biblically, according to God's law, and we are not to be respecters of persons. The poor is hated by his neighbors, but the rich, they're welcomed. You know why? You benefit from the rich. I told you guys that one time of that church I went to up in Central California, where we uh, had this bus ministry, and we, we bust in. Most of our bus ministry wasn't children. It was poor people from the motels in Fresno. We had a food bank there. Now, the food bank is supposed to help the poor. You buy the food in bulk from the county, and you give it away. That's the purpose of the food bank. But the church, what they would do is they would sell it for more than they paid for it. And then when they heard an inspector was coming around, they'd just tell everyone, hold your money till next week and pay us next week. I was down there one night, Sunday night, when they were distributing food, and one of the poor people that came on the bus said, can I get a bag of groceries? And the lady goes, fine. And she gave him a bag half filled with groceries. And the church threw a big banquet. Had a big famous pastor come in. And that was where the split between me and the church actually happened because in our staff meeting, the question came up, what about the bus riders? Should we invite them to the Thanksgiving feast? And the answer is like, well, no, we shouldn't. Because we want our church folks to come there. We don't have enough food for everyone. And church folks, they are the ones who give in the offering to continue the church. The bus folks, they don't, they don't contribute. They actually drain from our resources. And uh, as the pastor and myself and another man in the church, well, me and the other man were kind of united, telling the pastor, this is wrong. They're every bit of part of our church as anybody else is. They're here every Sunday. We came across that verse in the Gospels. I, don't, I didn't have my notes, but where Jesus says, you know, when you throw a feast, don't invite your good friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors. They can repay you. Invite the poor, the lame. The, they can't repay you. And we went to the pastor. We said, look at this passage. This, is, this, is, this came up in Bible reading this week. This is not a coincidence. What we're doing is wrong. He said, well, what we're doing is final. The bus people, the bus people, right? Can you imagine that? The bus people. They can't come to our banquet. And he said, our people come first. That's respect your persons. That's wrong. That's sin. That's not how a church should operate. A church, if you're operating a food bank, the first ones in line should be the poor people who can't afford food. Not the church people you're selling the food to to make money. That exists today, church, among Christians. Respecters of persons. I was in a church meeting one time. There was a fight over something. So many years ago, I forget now. And someone stood up and said, I don't think we should do this. People were like, well, we feel the Lord's leading us to do this. We're going to do it. And he goes, you don't understand how long I've been in this church and how much money I've given here. Because most of the people voting on this tonight have been here less time than me. So my vote should be double their vote. 
The pastor said, why don't you just go ahead and leave? You shouldn't have a vote here at all. That's the right thing to do. We're not going to play respecter of persons. That's, that's sin. You understand that, right? That's not just bad policy. That's sin. Have somebody come in church. They're kind of smelly, kind of dirty. Let's put them in the back pew. Oh, but look at that person. <laughs> they came in a Tesla. I bet they can give something in the offering plate. Let's, let's put them right in the best pew in the house. That's sin, church. We don't do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to judge rightly. Go to James 2. I know we all know the passage, but let's read through it. James lays this out for us. Christianity does not allow for partiality for the purpose of gaining favor. James 2.1 My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel... And there cometh also a poor man in vile raiment. Ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and save the poor. Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, or become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. We treat everyone the same, with the same respect, the same kindness, or as the Bible says, we love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what that really is. All the time, wealthy or poor, smelly or clean, it doesn't matter. I went to a, well, our last church, but three pastors ago, a man, this is back in the late 90s, a man in the church came to the pastor. The, uh, I'm, privy to the information, I don't have all the information, but from what I have, the man was right. The assistant pastor had sinned against him. And he went to the pastor and he said, this, this needs to be dealt with. This was a, a very grievous sin. And it offended me. And the pastor looked at him and goes, you might as well go to another church. He was here before you. He'll be here long after you. In other words, if we discipline him, he might leave. I, I don't want that. So why don't you go? He's got more clout here than you do. He's the assistant pastor. That was sinful. I don't care how long he's been there. And by the way, we're... 25 years later, that, that, that boat, well, the one pastor's dead, and the other one's gone. That's not how Christians operate. That's not how Christians operate. We don't treat some Christians better than others because of what they can offer us or do for us. We judge righteously. Uh, there was some hubbub yesterday on Facebook, you may have seen it, I don't know, over a pastor 
who put a quote, and uh, the, the quote isn't a bad quote. He just simply put a quote that the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. Did you see that hubbub? Yeah. It was hypocrisy because the pastor who posted it, it what does he do? He doesn't go out and evangelize publicly. He's not a missionary. He gets a six-figure salary at a very comfy, large megachurch and teaches at conferences. So people were pointing out, this is kind of hypocritical for him to post this. You're the pastor you're talking about there. And they begin to call out uh, the, uh, the senior pastor of the megachurch. Boy, that was a, I told my wife, they committed the cardinal sin. You never call this pastor out publicly or else it gets into, well, what have you done for God? He served God for so many, if he's wrong, he's wrong. Let's just be honest. If he's wrong, he's wrong. I don't care who he is, what his name is, how long he's preached. If he's wrong, he's wrong. And it's okay to call him out. But we're respectful of persons. Well, I'll call out this guy I don't like, but this guy, hands off. That's respect of persons. We're to judge everyone biblically. I always make a joke, the... That major pastor that was talking about his the greatest Bible expositor of this generation. I always joke that his theology is so off that most of his Bible expositing is wrong anyway. So why are we celebrating him? The point is, I don't care who he is. Remember Paul in Galatians? When he found the, 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 the stuff going on at dinner time? And Peter's over here pretending to be a Jew, and the Gentiles are over here being shunned by Peter and Barnabas. What is Paul? Paul's like, whoever they thought they were, I don't care. I confront them to the face. You're wrong. Someone can say, now, Paul, sit down. Peter walked with Christ all those years. Peter was there at the crucifixion. Okay, who are you to question Peter? And Paul's like, that's sin. I'll question Peter if he's sinning. He talks about pillars in the church. He's like, well, what is that? I don't want to misquote it. Hang on a second. Let me pull it up. I don't want to misquote the scriptures. That's the one I'm going for, brother, right over there. In Galatians 2.9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the graces given to me, well, that's not the right one. I I'm close, though. Oh, here we go. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepted no man's person, for they who seemed to be something in conference added nothing to me. In other words, he's saying, I don't care how important they seem to be. God's not a respecter of persons. We've got to get away in the church from the celebrity culture. Oh, they're famous, so hands off. Hands off. No. We judge according to the word of God. In church, in this church, we treat everyone equally under the word of God, regardless of how long they've been here or how much money they give. That doesn't matter. Like it or not, as long as I'm here, that's what we're going to do. Because that's biblical. We're not going to play favorites. We're not going to. And I will call out some famous pastors that you might like. You know why? Because we shouldn't have famous pastors. Let's, let's, just, let's just say that. But sin is sin, church. Let's stop playing favorites. Let's stop acting like some people are more important than others. 
Don't get excited when a rich person pulls in the parking lot and be sad when a homeless person walks in. They have an equal place at the cross. And we're to lead each one of them there the same way. Don't worry about the church. God will take care of his church. I remember being in the church one time, and this guy got mad at the pastor, and he left. He goes, I wanted to leave years ago, but I was worried if I left, the church would fall apart without my money. The pastor said, the church doesn't need your money. God supplies the needs of his church. God supplies the needs of his church. God's not sitting in heaven going, oh, I hope, boy, I hope Jason sticks around. Without his money, I don't know what I'm going to do. He owns everything. Stick around, Jason. I'm just, I need, I need an example. He owns everything. But when we play respecter of persons, we sin against God. Verse 22. I spent too much time there. Verse 22. Do they, err, do they not err that devise evil? But mercy and truth shall be to them that devise good. The question, of course, answered in and of itself. Do they not err that devise evil? Yes, they do. Those who devise evil stray from the way. Those who devise good will find mercy and truth. This is both from God and man, by the way. You devise good, men will respect you. This world will respect you. You devise evil, the world will not. People who do good find themselves often in the good graces of even the heathen. Do good. Remember Jesus? He grew in favor with God and man. The unbelievers see. They know. I remember one time I was at the hospital. I was walking down the hallway and somebody stopped me. She goes, we saw you guys preaching down at the bus station in Bakersfield. You're right on the street when you're preaching. I said, yeah, we go down there once a week or so and, and preach. She goes, I just knew something different about you. You don't talk like the other guys talk. You don't do what they do. I go out and party with them, I know. In other words, doing good is obvious even to sinful people. Something is different. That's a testimony. Can you imagine if, if I had been walking around cussing like a sailor and then she saw me out preaching? Can you imagine? What would that tell her about my Christianity? That's phony. Our lives are being watched. Our lives are being examined. Those that devise evil, they err from the way of righteousness. Verse 23. In all labor there's profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. In all honest, hard work there's profit. The talk of the lips here refers to someone sitting around talking and not working. Or not providing for themselves. Let me just say, barring extreme circumstances... We are to work and provide for ourselves and for our families. We are not to sit idle. We are not to be lazy. This is Christian 101. We're to work and provide. There are cases of accidents, illness, disability. I, I, I've known Christians who, who couldn't work. My mom, for many years, couldn't work. I understand that. But I, I've known a great deal of Christians who... get disability or food stamps and they don't need them. They con the system because they're lazy. They want to profess Christ, but they want to be lazy. Uh, we had one man in our church up in, by Fresno 
was in this long battle to get his uh, disability. So the first year I was there, I was there for two years. He come like to work days, and he, he couldn't do anything. Cause you know, trying to get disability. And one work day, the week after he got approved, we're at a work day, and someone's lifting this heavy lumber. He jumps up and goes, "Let me help you with that, brother!" And grabs the other end. The guy goes, "You, you, you can't help." He goes, "Oh, don't worry, I've already been approved." In other words, he could do it the whole time, but he knew they might be watching him. He was able-bodied and able to work. He didn't want to work. Then he went to the mission field as a missionary and robbed other churches of their money to support him when he had all that money coming in from the government that he didn't need in the first place. So basically, he was rolling in cash, living the life of luxury in Asia. Laziness, that's sin. That's dishonest. We're to be honest people. We're to live honest lives. We're to work to support our families. Go to Ephesians 4.28. Ephesians 4.28. Let's follow this through the scripture a little bit. There's a couple of passages to talk about this. I've known people, Christians, professing Christians, who take food stamps, but were able-bodied young men who had no families. I had a friend, I have a friend, I didn't have a, I have a friend. He fell in hard times a couple, a couple years ago and they had to seek out some help from welfare. And uh, he's white, his wife is black. And uh, he went in and they said, well, we can help you with this much for this amount of time. And it wasn't a lot, but it was enough. He's like, that's fine. So I get back on my feet. And the lady kind of leans across the table and says, I can get you more if your wife comes in without you. Yes. I can get you more. Yes. It's like, that's dishonest. We're not going to do that. I knew a hundred Christians who would have said, okay. Boy, the Lord's providing for me today. I'm robbing the United States government. No, no. He was honest. He says, no, that's, that's dishonest. We're not going to do that. I remember my mom one time was applying for, she was disabled but hadn't gotten any disability help and we were still living at home and she needed some help. So the person told her, goes, I can get you more food stamps if you say you don't have a car. My mom said, we're not going to lie. I have a car. I know, but put on the form that you don't, we can get you more. She said, we're not going to do that. That's dishonest. That's the Christian attitude to have. We're not going to steal. We're going to, if we have to get help, we're going to get the help that we need, nothing more. But the principle is we're going to work and we're going to support ourselves. We've lost that in our society. We've lost that. Remember there's a whole generation that even refused to take welfare? They do the they would do they would do the, the hardest jobs just to put food on the table because they didn't want to be helped. We've lost that. Ephesians four twenty eight. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good that he may give to him that needeth. All these people running around smashing things, stealing from the stores. They need to stop stealing and work. 
labor, provide for themselves. I read a story of these people in this smash and grab gang. They got, the law finally caught up with them. Four people who'd been going to stores, smashing things, taking stuff, just grabbing stuff off the shelves at Walmart, running out the door. You know where they arrested them? They arrested them Sunday morning in church. In church. Let me say it again, in church. Turns out the pastor was shocked. He said they are regular members of the church who volunteer and serve, and they're robbing stores. Labor, working with your own hands. This is the mandate of Scripture. The first Timothy 5 8. First Timothy 5 8. Christians are to be hard working people. First Timothy 5 8. The Bible says, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Now the context here is taking care of widows. I'm not going to say putting your mom in a nursing home is a sin. But the Bible kind of says putting your mom in a nursing home makes you worse than an infidel. You're to provide. When my mom was dying and bedridden, we took her into our home. You know why? Because that's what Christians do. We provide for our own. I've talked about this. We take care of one another. Nobody in this building should ever end up in a nursing home. At worst, they should end up in somebody else's home being taken care of because we should lay down our lives for one another. We should provide for one another. You understand that? We don't lock people away to be taken care of by somebody else. We take care of our people. Children are to work and care for their parents and don't put them off under the church. We know a church, the pastor died, 2001, the church still cares for the pastor's wife. She lives in a parsonage, they pay all of her repairs, all of her taxes. She has like four grown children. For over 20 years now, the church has cared for her. That is a sin. Those children who all profess Christ are in sin. Because the Bible says they are to work and they are to care for their own. The only ones the church cares for are those who have no children to relieve them. That's it. It was not a nurse's job to take care of my mom. It was our job. It was not the church's job to take care of my mom. It was our job. We've lost that. It's just so convenient, so easy. Just put them in a home and lock them up. Go about our life. We are such selfish people. We murder our children and we lock away our old people because we don't want to deal with them. The Bible says we deal with them. That's our responsibility. There is an application beyond widows here, I think, here to be made in general. A person who does not take care of their family has erred from the faith. It's a sin. We're to care for our families. It calls them worse than an infidel. You know why? Because even the unsaved care for their families. You're worse than them. Remember that uh, sin that happened in Corinth? And Paul writes them by the guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. We always say stepmother. I think it makes us feel better about how heinous. It doesn't say that. It says his father's wife. It could have been his very own mother. 
But Paul says, you're doing something even the heathens don't do. Can you imagine that? The heathens care for their own. We are to work with our hands and provide for our loved ones. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. The Bible says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear there are some which, will, which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Those not working were called what? Disorderly. In other words, out of order. Another way to say this, in sin. They were in sin. If a man doesn't work, then he shouldn't eat. We should provide for ourselves. Not that we don't need help. There are extreme situations. I understand that. The general principle of Scripture is that we work and we provide. There's a guy, I'm full of examples tonight. I know a lot of bad people, I guess. There's a guy, so when COVID came, they had that, you know, moratorium on rent and mortgage. Now, people were dumb and didn't realize that eventually you have to pay back all that back rent and mortgage. I know a professing Christian. I say professing. I don't, I don't think he is. When that happened, he goes, oh, boy. And he quit his job. He had a job, by the way. He wasn't, didn't have to stay home for COVID. He had a job that stayed open for COVID. Quit his job, stopped paying his mortgage, and played video games all day. Then took COVID relief money that he found out later he had to pay back. You know, a thinking person would think that. And he bought video games and consoles. And eventually it all came due. And he found himself homeless and jobless. And his family ended up living in a fifth wheel in somebody else's property. You know why? He was lazy. He was acting in a fundamentally unchristian way. By the way, when I say we work, we also don't take advantage of government programs to benefit ourselves. We don't do that. Look at verses 13 through 15. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. For if any man obey not our word, by this epistle note that man have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Lazy Christians are a case for church discipline. They are to be admonished. When it says have nothing to do with him, what he's saying there is basically you exclude him from the activities of the church. The love feast, the fellowship meal, the Lord's Supper, those kind of things. You don't ignore him or, you know, shun him. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. You treat him like you would an unbeliever. But if he says, if, any, if anybody in your church is not working, busybodies, then you discipline them. They're in sin. If you know Christians who are lazy and not working when they should be working, when they can work, rebuke them. Let them know that's a sin. Even if it's hard to work, they should work. I think cases of disability are very extreme. Like, 
There's no way, absolutely no way they can work. Not, you know, my feet hurt after eight hours, so I'm going to get disability. That's not what it's talking about. I was talking to somebody at the hospital I worked at. They're not a Christian, but they got carpal tunnel syndrome. I'm trying to get on full-time disability. I said, why? So I can't type anymore. I said, but you can do a lot of other things. Why, why would you do that? She did it. And uh, came back to work a couple of years later, dropped by, stay hi to people. And she had ballooned up 300 pounds. Her eyes were sunken in. She looked very unhealthy. You know what? Laziness will kill you. Yes. Just laying around, doing nothing. When you have the ability to work. But you know what? There are Christians who are doing the same thing that she was doing. There are Christians today who are doing the same thing. We are not to live that way, church. We are to be hardworking, industrious, care for ourselves, care for one another, care for our family. No excuses. There are exceptions, no excuses. One of the sins of Sodom, as outlined in Ezekiel, is abundance of idleness. It's a sin, by the way. Some people make a mistake of thinking that work is just a result of the fall. Oh, I wish I lived in the Garden of Eden, there'd be no work. It's not true. Go to Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. Work is not a result of the flood. Work is God's design for mankind. Genesis 2.15. The Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He was a gardener to care for the garden. Hard labor, thorns and thistles, that's a result of the fall. I understand that. That's the curse. But work has always been the original design of God for mankind. You guys in heaven, we're going to serve him, right? We're going to work. We're not going to sit on clouds floating around playing harps. We're going to serve. We're going to work. I know Jason's practicing now. I disappointed him. He's like, if I had known that, I would have chosen a different instrument. We're going to serve Christ for eternity. We're going to do stuff. You understand that, right? We're not going to be lazy in heaven. This is why those who work the hardest tend to live the longest. Because it's the design of God for mankind. When we sit idle, we die. Plain and simple. You know why people today are so lazy? Because they love death. We're so far from God. We love the ways of death. It's good for us. It's part of who God made us to be. Go back to Proverbs 14. I got on a rabbit trail there. But I think we really need to grasp that truth, don't we? We need to work. Even if you're retired, work. Work. My grandmother, in her retirement years, worked eight hours a day for free, I think. Our church's Christian school is the secretary. She didn't have to. But she wanted to stay busy. Do you know when her health went down, down the hill? When she stopped working. She had knee surgery, stopped working at the school, and her health was on a decline for the rest of her life. My grandpa lived to be 81. He was a hard worker. My, on my mom's side, my grandpa. He retired my whole life. He had 
my mom, he was, I don't know how old he was, probably late 40s, so he, he retired before I was born. I think I mentioned it before, my grandpa was a hard worker. He'd be up at 6, 7 o'clock every morning. Most, more, most mornings, he went about 7, 8 o'clock and had coffee with the pastor. He had a very, very low education, 6th grade level. He had to quit school and go work the fields. And so a lot of what the pastor said he didn't understand. So he'd go have coffee and sit and discuss the Bible with him to understand. And he spent the rest of the day, well, at least the next four or five hours, driving around the greater Bay Area, collecting cans, bottles, refrigerators, stoves, water heaters. He'd get back to the house. He'd have lunch. He'd unload his truck into his little backyard, I think illegal, junkyard he had back there. I know, I know his use of the torch was illegal. Grandma always got on him about that. The police are going to go up, come by and see the smoke coming out of the backyard. And he would take his torch and he'd break down and he'd go recycle. He, they had money. I think most of what he got for the recycling actually went to the church. But he stayed busy. And he'd work till 4 or 5 o'clock. Call it a day. You know why he did that? Because work was ingrained in him. It's natural to us. When we're lazy, we're actually fighting against God's design. We're doing a lot these days, aren't we? Trans stuff, LGBT. We're just fighting God's design for everything. Work is God's design. Let me get off that now. Verse 24. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. The wise use their riches to help others and serve others. They use it to gain more wealth. Fools waste their wealth. They heap it up to themselves. They heap up to themselves more foolishness. Let me give you a great example. Lottery winners. <laughs> Most of them are fools, aren't they? What happens to them? 99% of the time, they end up broke. You know why? They're fools. They just try to heap up their lusts and they consume and they consume and they waste and they waste. People who work for their wealth tend not to waste it. They tend to use it in a wise way. The crown of the wise is their riches. Verse 25, a true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. This highlights the importance of honesty in court. A true and honest witness will deliver the innocent from accusation, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. I know a lot of people from my time working in the prison there, ministering in the prison who were locked up for a lot of years because somebody lied about them. And DNA tests come back years later and find out they're innocent. And they just lost 30 years of their life, 20 years of their life. One guy, 40 years of his life because somebody lied in court. You say, why should we be honest? Because sometimes people's lives depend on it. People's lives depend on it. I read a story one time of a juror who was compromised in a case. And uh, there was a rumor about it. And the judge asked them, you've been reading stuff you shouldn't know, Your Honor. It's untrue. I haven't been. He had been. And he had been hearing false information. And he voted to convict based on false information. 
And later it came out, the judge was able to throw the case out. But what I'm saying is, honesty delivers a soul. It delivers. But a deceitful witness begins lies. You realize Jesus was perjured about, wasn't he? Paul was perjured about. Truthfulness is a very important thing. Verse 26, And the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. And those who fear the Lord have grounds for confidence in Christ's love and favor. God delights in those who fear him. You realize that, church? God delights in you today. Let's go back to our sermon this morning. That's why we can rejoice in the Lord. He delights in you and in me. So even in bad times, he's, rejo- he's delighting in us. He's not angry. I have somebody, I'm not going to say a name, keeps telling me, Pastor, I think God's, this bad thing happening is God's punishing me for not being faithful to him. It's not how God works. He may discipline his children. Let's get this straight. There's no punishment for God's people. There's discipline. Christ took all of our punishment. But what gets me is this person says this with a straight face and then doesn't come to church for another four weeks. Come to church then if you feel that way. If you truly. But listen, God delights in us. If he's disciplining us, it's to get us back on the path. To get us right with him. So get right with him. If you see that going on in your life, get right. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. If you're living in the fear of God, if you're living by the law of God, if you're living in obedience to God, you have strong confidence. You know what? That God delights in you. And even the bad times are not God judging you or punishing you. There may be testings, there may be trials, but God's purpose is to strengthen you and to grow you into his image. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Listen, God is not... We have to get rid of this idea that God is this far-off deity floating in the clouds who has just... Okay, he saved us, but does he really like us? Yes. He delights in us. He takes pleasure in us. That's why we should go to him and talk to him about everything. I I was reading a pastor or theologian one time who said, talk about going to the Lord. Tell him what a fun time he had at the fair. And somebody heard him praying. He goes, Pastor, why did you tell God you had a good time at the fair? He goes, God delights in me having a good time at the fair. I thanked him for the good time I had. God cares, church. He delights in us. He takes pleasure in us. So share everything. We, we go to God this thought like he's, I mean, he is God. Have respect, have reverence. But we, we don't have to come to him with this, you know, formalism of, oh, thou holy Lord. Thank you for thine blessings upon my life. No. Go to him and say, God, I had a really good day today. Thank you. This happened and this happened. You say, well, pastor, he knows that happened. Then why take him our request at all? He knows everything. He knows what we need. <clears throat> why say, Lord, I need this, since the Lord knows it already? Go over your day like a kid comes home. Make, the kids will come home from this summer camp. We did this, and we did this, and we did this, and we had a great time. Imagine we pray to God that way a little bit and realize that he takes pleasure in us. 
He likes us, church. We have a strong ground for confidence because God likes us. I like that it says his children have a place of refuge. We're not promised our children will be saved. But I do think it's more likely when they have parents who are believers. This most likely means that the examples set by the parents will point their children to the refuge that's found in Christ. By the way, grandchildren too. Live your life to point your kids or grandkids to Christ. I don't care if your kids are grown. Live in such a way that you point them to Christ. That you point them to the refuge they can have in that time of storm. We demonstrate to others the worth and value of Christ by living our faith in front of people. Listen, people won't take pleasure in Christ if we don't. (laughs) You need to enjoy your salvation. We can't have a miserable salvation and be like, okay, you guys come get saved and be like us. Why? You're miserable. You think God's got his thumb over you waiting to crush you. Enjoy your salvation. Have a good time. Delight in God. He delights in you. And live that for the world to see. Say, I want, I kind of want to hear that gospel. They look like they're having a good time. Paul's in prison, facing near death, going, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. That was infectious. People wanted to rejoice too. They wanted to suffer because Paul, look at him, he's suffering, he's rejoicing. Verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord leads to obedience to the Lord. Obedience leads to eternal life, not as the source of life, but of having received it. We are obedient because we have been forgiven. Obedience is not the way to bring about forgiveness, but it demonstrates we have been forgiven. So in other words, you don't get eternal life for obedience, but you obey because you have eternal life. The fear of the Lord leads us to depart from the snares of death. It leads us to seek life in the gospel. And it keeps us from sin and from backsliding. Boy, there is no fear of God today, is there? This world walks without the fear of God. Christians walk without the fear. The things that people do in churches. I, I've said it before. Some of these churches, it's just one big party. It's like a concert. I want to do, I think we're going to have a game night one night. I'm going to bring up pictures. And it's going to be guests. Is this a rock concert or a church service? You can't tell anymore. Christians have no fear. We don't worship in fear and reverence. We don't live in fear and reverence. We have no fear of God. If we have no fear of God, the world's not going to have fear of God. By the way, most churches today have departed from God's design for worship. Why are we surprised the world is departing from God's design for marriage? If we're not going to follow God's design, why should they? We live that in front of them. We made worship about us, about our likes, our preferences, what makes us feel good. We've done it to draw people in. Well, the world's having a party. We should have a better party. No. We don't build the kingdom by having a better party. We build it by stark contrast, light and darkness, truth and error. 
Verse 28. In the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. A king with a large number of subjects living in peace brings honor. The want of people, the lack of people, is the destruction of the prince. A monarch, a monarch whose people are few through abuse or lost through war is disgraced. This is a beautiful picture, church, of our Savior. Satan is called the prince, isn't he? His kingdom is plundered and shamed. But Christ, our king, is honored in the multitude of his people. You realize that the prince of this world was cast out, right? And this world will, in eternity, be populated with billions of people who worship Jesus Christ. There's great honor in that. There's great honor in that. Verse 29, he that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. He that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. A wise person is slow to anger. How often do we see people who are quick to anger and they end up being wrong? They have to eat their words. Have you ever done that? I've done that. Every fight with my wife, she's always right. Okay, 99% of the time she's right. And I realize later that I opened my mouth and I shouldn't have. But I'm too stubborn to apologize, so we sit in silence for a while and watch television until I can... I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm wrong a lot of the time. That's why you can't be hasty to be angry. We need to think about things. Think about what's it. Hear the whole matter. Don't be quick to judge or to speak out of turn. Anger destroys a person who's angry. People hold on to anger. That root of bitterness, man, that destroys you. It destroys you. It eats you from, it's like a cancer. It just eats away. Anger seldom resolves conflict. You want to resolve conflict? Have a soft answer. Think before you speak. Me too, by the way. Us. We need to think before we speak. Anger has never solved a conflict ever. No one's ever gotten mad, blown up at the person, and like five minutes later, oh man, everything's good. And we're... No. It perpetuates anger. Then it's both sides. And there's no talking. And there's bitterness. And we remember that time they said, no, 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 Christian. Don't be quick to anger and don't hold on to anger. It will eat your soul. Verse 30. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Let's start at the end and work back. Envy is rottenness. Like a cancer it eats away the heart of man. We envy. We want to be, or we, we, or we want to be like them, or we envy the whatever they have. We envy their position. We envy their popularity. It leads to bitterness and hatred. Envy does. Envy makes a person generally unpleasant to be around. You've been around an envious person who's just bitter, complaining, angry. A sound heart, which is free from envy and bitterness, is healthful. Envy and bitterness can lead even to bad health. 
How many people's health is ruined by holding on to anger, bitterness, which comes from envy? Man, it ruins your physical well-being. A sound heart is life to the flesh. I was watching a lady on TV the other day. She was like a hundred and, I don't know, eight. Still driving her car. And I'm like, what's your secret? Do you abstain from alcohol? She goes, no, I drink a lot. Is it your diet? She goes, I don't think so. I eat cake like three times a week. And the days I don't, I have pie. They said, why are you living so long? And she goes, I've never been mad at anybody. I don't let things get to me. She said, I'm happy on purpose. I choose to enjoy life. A good heart church is health to the bones. It affects our health, our well-being, not to mention our soul. People who have a sound heart, they're at peace with others. Their stress levels are down. That lady in the interview, she was at peace with the world. She goes, I'm not mad at anybody. I don't envy anybody. I have everything I need. My life is full. I enjoy my life. Every morning I get up. My whole goal is to enjoy life. And at 108, she does that by working a part-time job. You know why? Because work is good. It's our design to keep working. When she's not working her part-time job, those days she fills by doing meals on wheels and taking meals to people and shut-ins in their home. She just works, volunteers, and doesn't hate, and doesn't fight, and doesn't hold grudges, and doesn't envy. And that woman's unsaved, as far as I know. But she demonstrates the truth of the scripture that a sound heart is health, and envy is rottenness to the bones. Guard your heart. It affects your health. Let me challenge you tonight in closing. Guard your heart against envy and bitterness. Guard your heart. It's so easy to let that creep in. I remember what they did to me, and I'm not going to let that, let it go. Well, they deserve, I need to get them. What did you deserve that Christ didn't give you? Let it go. We need to ask ourselves, is this worth it? Will this matter 100 years from now? When we're in heaven in 100 years, will this matter? If it won't matter in 100 years, it's not a big deal today. Have your anger under control. Don't be quick to be angry. Be slow to anger and demonstrate wisdom. Hear matters and weigh them biblically. I think we'll find, if we do that, that most of the things we're angry about aren't worth being angry about, if we're honest. Don't show partiality. Don't show partiality. Treat all people well. When I was, I need to finish up here. When I was in school, I was very young. I got picked on a lot. I was kind of nerdy, I admit it. I hated it. And there was one teenager in our Christian school, and he didn't mistreat anybody. And he held, hung out with the cool kids and the nerd kids. He hung out with those who were something and those who were nothing, like me. And it often came to our defense if we were being picked on. 
Um, he, I, I haven't talked to him in 25 years. As I grew up, went to a different Christian school, I became kind of a big thing. Meaning I was one of the popular kids. I made it a point to spend my time with the nerd kids, with the unpopular kids. Maybe in our break, I'll play basketball, but the next break, I'm going to sit down and play checkers with the kids playing checkers. Watching his example taught me a valuable lesson. So when I went, this is in my high school, I was friends with everybody, the whole school, all age groups. People are watching our example. Don't show partiality. Treat everyone with respect and kindness. You could change their life. Trust me, that watching him, those little acts of kindness, if I hadn't had that, I can't promise you I'd be standing here today. It changes lives when we do that. And it honors God. We're not going to show partiality in our church. I will shut this church down before I favor somebody with money, with money over somebody without money or long standing over a new person. I'm, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sin to keep the church open. If God wants the church open, he'll keep it open. We're, we're not going to show partiality. We're not going to play favorites. We're going to do what Christ said to do, love our neighbor as ourselves. Walk in the fear of the Lord. It leads to life and health. Be honest. Work hard. This is true Christian character. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this time in the Word. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, your grace, your mercy. You've been so kind, so gracious, so tender. I got excited while I was preaching. It wasn't even in my notes, but I got excited talking about you. You delight in us. You take pleasure in us. I, it's almost like as I was preaching it, Lord, it, it hit me. Help me to remember that. Thank you for taking pleasure in us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for delighting in us. May we delight in you. May we take pleasure in you. May we set our love upon you because you first loved us. Help us walk in wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.